the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Today I have with me very close colleague, I would like to call him a friend, Dr. Wael Hadara. He is the Chair and Chief of Critical Care Medicine at Western University, Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, and also the great pleasure to have him as a researcher with us at CRI. Welcome, Wael. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because, as I was saying to some other people before, is we get to talk a lot about the work we do, but very rarely we talk about our lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that kind of adds to the meaning of why we do the things that we do. So that's the purpose of this podcast overall. So I always want to start with the beginning. And I was reading your website, and I know you came to Canada when you were about 14. That's right. Which is quite in the middle of important years. So I want to pick up the story up to 14, when you were born in Egypt, up to 14. Who was well? What did you do? Who was your family? What was the environment you grew up? <laughs> Are you sure you want to go there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that's an interesting question. I I, um, I, I was born in Egypt, uh, Cairo specifically, and uh, grew up in Egypt for the first nine years of my life. My parents are both engineers. Um, and when I was nine, we moved to Kuwait, um, so on the Gulf, and. Um, and I would say Kuwait was probably the formative years of my life. Uh, Kuwait at that time was known as the Pearl of the Gulf, and it uh, it was, and I hope it remains a, a you know a wonderful country to grow up. But we had a really great experience growing up in the public school system. Uh, you had to work very hard. Um, it was a very competitive, um, scholastic environment, academic environment, but um, learned lots. And um, for some reason, at that point in time, I became pretty much set on biological sciences and, and on medicine specifically. As a career, uh, this is you know 12, 13 years old. Um, mm -hmm. It probably didn't help that my mother, uh, bless her, was also very much interested in, in, in me becoming a physician. Um, my older brother, I have one older brother who became an engineer. And, um, and I think my mother really wanted um, a physician in the family. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, that was um, the Kuwait years. Um, I read voraciously. Um, uh, it was uh, the highlight of the year for us was the International Book Fair that came around once a year. All these publishers from around the world, mostly Arabic books, but some English. And, um, and my dad would take us and we would be allowed to buy however many books we wanted, wow. basically. I mean, that was the, sort of the one time in the year where, you know, the budget was flexible. If mm. it was a good book and you were interested, then, um, then we could make a case for <laughs> it. So I uh, read lots of, uh, lots of stuff in translation. Uh, um, and then eventually, as I picked up English, you know, started reading a little bit more, although my, my reading in English didn't really start in earnest until we came to Canada. Okay, okay so two things. 
you were in a family of engineers. Mm -hmm. How did you develop that <laughs> uh, interest in medicine? One, number one, number two, why did your mom want so want to be a physician? <laughs> mm. So, I mean, I think the second one is easier. Um, you know, I, I don't think my mom was really that um, um, sort of I drank the Kool-Aid, so okay. to speak. No, she, so she wasn't enamored with medicine, I, with, sorry, with engineering. I, yeah. I think she, uh, she didn't think engineering was as fantastic a um, <laughs> uh, discipline as, as everybody made it out to be. Um, and I think she probably, I like to think, to think that she read me correctly. Um, you know, there's a certain way, as you would know, there's a certain way that engineers have to think. Yes. You know, uh, very systematic, very organized, you know, list-based. Um, I'm much more of a lateral thinking thinker, uh, okay. and I think that was obvious even as a, as a young person. Um, so I'd like to think that she, she saw that. Um, for me, it was exactly that. It was that I, I liked biology. I loved um, learning about how the human body works, and and I loved bringing things together in my head from different areas, okay. even when I was younger. Um, and so, to me, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in engineering, but I was interested in biology and in human biology okay. specifically. And how did you think that biology or medicine will allow you to bring? different ideas together? So I didn't know at the time. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't have a coherent idea of how that works in medicine. I, I do now, mm. um, you know, and, and it's really about this notion, uh, the difference between treating patients versus treating diseases, mm -hmm. right? Um, but even if we just talk about treating diseases, I mean, one of the, one of the great pitfalls of medicine is the um, is the silo kind mm. of uh, way of that we practice things. When I was um, so skip many years later, one of my interests was in um, an entity called ARDS, which is a respiratory failure aspect of, of critical illness. It happens in association with severe infection, and I and I did a project, a fairly extensive research project on ARDS back in the nineties. And to do that, I actually eventually wrote a paper um, and presented it. It never got anywhere, but, but to write that paper, what struck me is that I was reading uh, background papers in toxicology, oh. in microbiology, immunology, in molecular biochemistry, uh, in virology, in um, physiology and pharmacology. And none of these papers referenced each other, even though <laughs> they were talking about the same thing. Yeah. You know? And so I do think uh, that, that integration is something that is lacking in modern medicine. Um, there's a great, I have a book from um, Queen's University in um, Ireland. Um, it was 19, this 1923, I think, is the, is the edition. And it's a collection of axioms um, that they use to teach medical students. Yeah. And uh, so you do, there's some very specific ones about infection and, and surgery and whatnot. But in the beginning, there's these general axioms. And one of them says extreme specialization was one of the causes of the decay of medicine in ancient Egypt. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, you know, okay, I'm not sure how specialized you could be in ancient Egypt uh, medicine. But, but that is the problem we have today. And it comes from all the way. It comes all the 
the way, the way through. through. Yeah. It's interesting. I was reading this book, and I think I, I, I told you called Range, mm -hmm. and there were there are studies that are looking into um, how much papers that make connections among different disciplines that they don't cite each other. They mm. don't get cited in the short term. In the long term, they say 10, 15 years after, it becomes the top 1% both cited papers. Right. So people who make integration of knowledge become right. more memorable. Right. That's an interesting right. piece. Which but, in the, but in the short term, they don't belong to anybody. No, because people don't want to take it. Yeah. It's hard to get funded to. Yeah, yeah. It's an yeah, interesting so dichotomy. Yeah. Okay, so now you are in Kuwait, which I, that part I didn't know. Then you moved to Canada. So what drove those moves for mm -hmm. your family? Mm -hmm. And then, my gosh, you were from Egypt to Kuwait to St. John's to Hamilton to Kingston to London. That's right. So what's the story there? That's right. So, you know, the move from Kuwait to Canada was fairly straightforward. As a non-Kuwaiti, um, you were not really, there, there were no positions at Kuwait University, which was the sole university at the time mm -hmm. uh, for non-Kuwaitis. So, um, with very minor exceptions, um, and so the expectation was that I wouldn't qualify for those exceptions. They're grade based. I wasn't that hardworking as a <laughs> as a student. Uh, my brother, who is much more hardworking than I am and is brilliant, actually did get into Kuwait University engineering, and so. You know the challenge for us, is, as it was for many families back then, and remains, I think, for many families working in the Gulf, is where do you get your university education? Yeah. Um, and so most of the options entailed the family sort of splitting up in, in one way or the other, or I'm or myself going um, away on my own. I was 14, turning 15, and so my my parents weren't thrilled about mm -hmm. the idea of kind of going abroad on my own. Uh, my parents had done their graduate studies in, uh, at Berkeley, actually, in the oh, States okay. in the 60s, and so my, my dad started corresponding with some of his old colleagues, and they sent him a job offer, or a, a job opportunity for a position mm. in his discipline, which is naval architecture, uh, at Memorial University. He uh, came uh, to St. John's and interviewed in the dead of winter. Oh, January, gosh. <laughs> And came back, you know, very happy. All right. <laughs> with everybody, and um, you know, he said people were very warm and, and welcoming, and uh, and so I remember, you know, we sat down, had a family meeting, and um, and collectively, you know, made the decision to okay. start that adventure. So I came to Canada in 1986, and. Um, it just could happen to be one of the worst winters in Newfoundland <laughs> that year, <laughs> but um, but yeah, my dad was was right in the sense that it was a wonderful place, people-wise. People, -wise. people uh -huh. are very warm. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're um, there's no racism in Newfoundland, or there wasn't at that point, at least that we experienced. Right. There is a um, you know, Newfoundlanders talk about being CFA. Um, so CFA means you're come from away. Oh, okay. So if you're from Halifax, you're come from away. You know? Okay, and yeah. If you're from Ottawa, you're come from away. <laughs> if you're from Egypt, you're still come from away. Yeah. But there's no difference between the, you know, oh, cool. there's, no, there's no ranking system for CFA. Yeah, I see. And so, and they do respect people that come to Newfoundland, you know, okay. this is back in the 80s. So first year university, Memorial, um, ended up doing pharmacy as an yeah. undergrad. Yeah. Um, and then came to, by the, by the time I was done pharmacy, I had sort of lost interest in medicine as a career. <laughs> this was, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. It was the, um, 
the, the beginning of understanding HIV. Sure. Remember HIV kind of sort yep. of exploded um, in, in the mid-80s and we just sequenced the, um, the HIV gene. Hmm. I was really interested in control of gene expression okay. um, and enrolled in a master's program uh, in the virology at McMaster with a view to eventually uh, moving into industry or academia, just in the area of drug design and discovery oh, okay. specifically, um, centered around gene control. Right. Um, discovered that I was completely unsuited for batch research. Um, oh. And eventually left that program without completing it. Worked as a pharmacist for a year, applied to medical school. Okay. And um, yeah, I went to Queens for medical school and then uh, eventually uh, matched to Western for residency. Oh, okay, okay, now I understand. Yes, yeah, so that's that. Okay, I missed one thread. What about your brother? Did he stay? Did he come? No, he, well, he stayed, no, no, he, we all moved together. Everybody yeah, moved, Yeah, so okay. he had to restart engineering oh. again from scratch, so he lost a year. Okay. Uh, and so we ended up graduating at the same time. Uh, when I came to McMaster, he went to this little dinky university called Stanford. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. he did his master's and PhD there, and uh, okay. he now teaches at uh, McMaster, ironically. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you did pharmacy, and I read that you de helped develop a patent at age 20. Yeah. What was that about? So, that was part of my master's program. Yeah. Uh, I own 10% of that patent. Okay. Um, and uh, it was basically a vehicle for uh, gene expression. Okay. Um, the idea was to use that for genetic um, diseases okay. uh, as a gene replacement. It didn't end up being very successful uh, therapeutically, but it became uh, a, a tool that was very widely used for developing other things. Okay. Um, so it's an adenovirus-based um, vector for gene therapy. Okay. What was the thing that told you that you were not for bench research? How did you discover that? So, you know, doing bench research yourself requires a lot of patience, mm -hmm. and it requires a lot of planning, and, and it's kind of almost engineering-like. Yeah. You, you need to plan your, your experiments ahead of time. You need to really do the kind of sort of the, be, have the attention to detail and the patients to um, do an experiment, have it yield results that were totally unexpected and entirely useless. Mm -hmm. Unexpected and fascinating would be yeah. one thing, but unexpected and not helpful, yeah. and then going back and figuring out that you didn't design the right experiment or didn't use the right controls. Mm -hmm. or you know, That kind of detail, I have to say, was, was not interesting to mm -hmm. me. And, and so, what, so that reflected in my performance. My performance was abysmal. Okay. Um, and that was one of the things I learned about myself, is that for me to do something, yeah. uh, particularly on an ongoing basis, I have to be interested. Engaged. Okay. Engaged. Yeah. So then you move from pharmacy to medicine. You are in medicine now. Mm -hmm. How did pharmacy influence the way you took up medicine? Because mm -hmm. uh, I imagine, even though you didn't continue pharmacy, mm -hmm. you learned a lot, I imagine, that informed the way you approach medicine. Mm -hmm. so can you tell absolutely, us? Absolutely. I mean, pharmacy is one of the best um, practicing pharmacy, okay. so, so not just studying pharmacy. Yeah. Um, but pharmacy is one of the best ways of preparing for medical schools, yeah. I think. 
And it what really allowed me is the luxury of not having to learn a lot of things around therapeutics from scratch, okay. and therefore having that cognitive um, freedom, the headspace to learn other things. Mm. Um, practically, it also meant that I had um, identified internal medicine as my career path right from the get-go. Oh, okay. And so, whereas a lot of people were um, busy or were stressed out trying to figure out what they mm. want to do in life, I knew it was going to be internal medicine and a, and a variation thereof, mm. um, or a discipline within internal medicine, because that's where the you know the bulk of therapeutics is exercised. Right. So that was what I was familiar with. I liked it. I knew you know my, my stuff. I knew that I liked it. Yeah. I could see myself doing it. And then in my first year of um, my first year of medical school was my wife's last year of law school. Okay. And so she wanted to do her articling year in Toronto. So I asked for and the Queen's graciously granted me a year off. Um, and we moved to Toronto, and I and I got a job mm -hmm. during that year as an ICU pharmacist. Oh, okay. And it was a novel idea of having a pharmacist, you know, based within the ICU. Right. So I came back into second year medical school, knowing I wanted to do ICU, <laughs> which is a subspecialization. Yeah. And um, and yeah, and so that was that was my uh, career path from okay. second year medical school. Okay, so pharmacy informed medicine. Now, medicine to medical education. Mm -hmm. I understand you're interested in many topics, but mm -hmm. I, I want to know what is it about medical education that complements you with the critical care mm -hmm. part? Of it? Sure. So, I actually had no interest in medical education oh, okay. per se. Uh, my, you know, if I if I could have it my way, yeah. what I would have done back in you know 2004, 2005 is not a master's in medical education, but um, a master's in organizational development. Mm. What I was really interested in is how people think, yeah. um, but how they think and work together. You know, and so what are the things, you know, how does this practice of medicine, which really is a product totally of, of the ICU environment, because okay. that's a discipline that is delivered in, through teamwork, yeah. you know, how do people coming together uh, do things. Um, that's what I was fascinated with, and and I was, uh, you know, there were there were other elements of this because as a pharmacist, you're the um, you're sort of on the on the lower rungs of the ladder as a team oh, member. Yeah. Okay. You know? So there's so the other questions of hierarchy and power yeah. were ancillary questions that I was interested yeah. in, but. I, you know, um, I couldn't find a program in, in no. organizational development that would kind of satisfy these needs. Medical education was the default that everybody seemed to be going mm. through. And so that's where I went. And what was the aha moment to stay with us around here? Well, so when I first met Lorelei okay. uh, Lingard, um, we, you know, she she asked me what I was interested in. Uh, she, as everybody knows, I'm sure she's extremely generous with her time and counsel. And so I was an undifferentiated. I had no research experience at the time, and I had no particular art, well articulated goal of research. Um, and so she asked me, well, "What are you interested in?" So I said, "You know, teamwork." Mm -hmm. So. Um, so we started exploring that a little bit, and we settled on this idea of, well not settled, I proposed the idea of measuring um, the collaborative environment in the ICU. Okay. 
So I think she was kind of, she, was, she wasn't that interested in that, but she played along. And yeah, how she, did, did she react to the word measuring? Yeah, right. <laughs> so she said, well, how would you do that? So, uh, so I said, well, there's a number of tools. You know, there's, okay. like, there's about half a dozen different, you know, measurement tools out there, surveys. And she said, ah, well, why are there half a dozen different yeah. tools? <laughs> As I mean, you, you can see where this is going. Yeah. So we end up doing a critical discourse analysis <laughs> of professional collaboration, which was the aha moment for me. Right? Oh, okay. Is, okay, I mean, so you know, medical education is not is vast, mm -hmm. and um, and you can do measurement, you can do you know psychometrics, you can do um, you know understanding the processes of teaching, learning, feedback, etc. Or you can excavate the underlying uh, interactions mm -hmm. that underlie the premises of medical education. Yeah. So, so that's where we started with the discourse analysis of IBC, professional collaboration, and um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a ride. <laughs> How was it for you to go from thinking about measuring to reading discourse analysis literature? Well, it was a. I mean, it was a. a you know, in the moment, I have to say, it was, it seemed like it made a lot of sense. Oh, know? okay. So, you know, it, this, the sequence, as I said, is, you know, I, this is what I want to do. Well, how are you going to do it? Well, there's going to, you know, there's these different tools. Well, why are there different tools? Mm -hmm. And then we go back and you, with that question of why is this tool different from that tool? Right things jump out at you. Mm. You know, there's differences in language, differences in assumption, you know. And so when I came back to Lorelei with that answer, uh, you know, and she has this talent, yeah. right, for uh, being able to comment on something without having herself, you know, immersed herself in it, but but it's by extracting that information mm. from almost mm -hmm. your subconscious mind. Yes, you know, like, <laughs> But, uh, but then the question became, well, how do we study this? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was fascinated, you know, because I'm now seeing something that I did not see before, and now I can't unsee it. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, and and it clearly no one else can see it, yeah. you know. Um, and so uh, Lorelai thought Brian Hodge might be able to um, shed some light on how we can approach this. and. Uh, he was coming back here for the series symposium. Oh, okay. Gave his uh, session on critical discourse analysis, and uh, and so we sat with him, and he said, "I think this could be a fascinating discourse oh, analysis." Do you know anything about Foucault? Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> so I spent probably about a year oh uh, reading. You know Foucault trying to kind of decipher uh, Foucauldian methodology. I'm, I'm, you know, saying methodology in quotes. But it seemed like you know, I mean, where I ended was nowhere near where I started. <laughs> I mean, probably I'm on a different planet. But <laughs> but in the moment, it seemed a very logical progression. Yeah. You know? um, the paper was very well received. I think it was. Uh, you know, I got a, a personal note from the editor of Academic Medicine about the paper. He asked me to be on a panel that wow. year at, um, yeah, at um, uh, the WMC conference. Yeah. So it was it was um, it was well received, and I'm you know very proud of it. Uh, but yeah, I ended up exactly where I wanted to start or to be, uh, but but 
talking about 20 years earlier, right. not <laughs> two years earlier. Yeah, 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 okay. Well, thank God you like to read, because mm. that would be a little bit difficult. Yes. Yeah. So speaking about reading, uh, I you also described yourself as a bibliophile, would you yeah. say that? Okay. Community activist, political analyst, thought leader in the Middle East. How did you come to all that variety of interests? Like, what is it about each of those that attracts your attention? Number one and number two, how have them enriched your life personally? Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think let's start with books. Yeah. I, I firmly believe that that's something that your parents passed down to you. I admired my parents. Mm. They were, you know, voracious readers themselves. Um, I mean, each of them probably always had a book on their night table. Okay. Uh, so that, you know, was... And they never had to tell us to read, really. Like, they never actually... Uh, not, not that I recollect, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, you know, they made opportunities for acquiring books easy for us. Um, when I came to Canada, I remember the first book that I ever picked up third day that we were in Canada was uh, in St. John's was The Count of Monte Cristo oh, by wow. Alexander Dumas. Yeah. Uh, and I had I had a vague rec or understanding of the theme of the novel, but didn't really know it. So read it, read it in two days. Oh my. Fell in love with Alexander Dumas and then went to the library at Memorial and proceeded to read everything that he had written. And Dumas um, took on the task of serializing French history. So he wrote about French history right from the end, the beginning of the Bourbon dynasty to the French Revolution, and actually even past the French Revolution. And so his style of writing injected a lot of historical events into mm -hmm. his novels. And so I would read a novel, so I would read The Three Musketeers, for example, yeah. and then I would go off and read about Louis XIII, Richelieu, oh my uh, Louis XIV, Mazarin, the Regency, the Fronde, you know, etc. Um, and so I actually read European history through, um, oh, not through the, but, but at, at the instigation of yeah. Dumas. Um, picked up another author that my brother was interested in, Jack Higgins, who uh, is a novelist, a contemporary, has a number of interesting novels, mm -hmm. but a lot of them center on Irish history and well, contemporary Irish history. Yeah. And so got really interested in um, the development, modern development of Ireland. And hmm. then that took me to British history, and then that took me to Middle Eastern history, oh, wow. and um, et cetera, et cetera. So okay. it was just sort of one thing after the other, it seemed. Yeah. Um, my parents, um, you know, inculcated, that's also a, um, a certain amount of um, uh, fidelity to faith. And so mm. I, you know, I'm reasonably well read in my faith tradition, but also in um, Arabic poetry, Arabic literature, mm. which I find, um, you know, very elegant and beautiful. Right, right. So that's the reading part, you okay. know, well, but, but and my interest really kind of flew, flowed from my readings, you know, okay, so okay. Um, if you have an interest in history, it's not that much of a leap to have an interest in politics. Yes. Um, the Middle Eastern piece, um, in terms of the analysis, was a product of just of the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually, this is a different, long story, but 
in, in, in a nutshell, became involved with the government of the administration of President Mohamed Morsi, mm -hmm. um, and I was one of his senior advisors at the time. Uh, took time off from work here and kind of sort of shuttled back and forth between Cairo and uh, mm -hmm. and London, and uh, so that was an education and diplomacy that was very eye-opening and very interesting. Mm -hmm. Did somebody ask you to be part of that, or yeah. can you tell? So, I mean, the, the longer version of the story is that um, one of my friends uh, had gone back to Egypt from having been in Canada, okay. um, was his uh, foreign policy coordinator. Mm. And uh, my mom had passed away at the, at the same time, uh, so I was in Egypt uh, for sort of around that. Um, and this was at the time of the actual presidential campaign. So what I was involved in initially was the campaign mm, part mm -hmm. of things. And then when he won, um, he asked me to wow. kind of sort of go back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Long story and very strange now that I kind of sort of reflect on it ten years later. But um, yeah. but uh, definitely uh, you know. Um, eye-opening and, and perspective changing in a number of ways. Yeah, I remember seeing a photo of you maybe in a newspaper at the UN. Yeah. They just said, that's me. Went, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then we were having a meeting with you, Lorelai and you and I, and you didn't show up. And we were like, that's strange. And then you said, well, I was on the phone with this president and this president. And we go, whoa, <laughs> okay. I imagine how changing your perspective that might be. Anga was, Anga's the United Nations General Assembly was a, was a, um, a very interesting experience. I yeah. imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, obviously things did not end well. Um, mm. And uh, the sort of, <laughs> the restoring democracy in Egypt is going to be another generational task. Mm. Um, a lot of trauma mm -hmm. sort of in the meantime, yeah. but uh, it's not a story that's quite yet closed yet, I don't think. Yeah. But time will tell. Yeah. One of the my strongest memories of being here since twelve years ago is the day you asked me to go for coffee and talk about Colombia mm. and the crisis in Colombia. That was very memorable. That's mm. when I started. To, I, I was curious why someone like you would be interested in <laughs> Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's intriguing to me. Do you have a talent for fast reading? Are you a photographic memory person, or how do you read that fast? And I don't. Uh, I can't say it's photographic, but okay. it used to be. Um, it used to be quite good. Used to. Uh, used to for sure. <laughs> oh. Not not anywhere near where it used to be. But um, uh, I am a. You know the studies that people do on expertise yeah. and the issue of memory and expertise and uh -huh. how most studies have debunked the idea that experts recall more things. Uh, but my read of math literature is that the more familiar you are with the topic, the more you are able to recollect more relevant things. Okay, yeah. Or if not relevant, but at least high-yield information. So the high-yield information may not end up being relevant, but it is definitely high-yield. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of where maybe the methodology for those studies isn't really reflective mm -hmm. of what actually goes on in people's minds. Yeah. So I like to think of my memory to be like that, is maybe I don't remember everything, it's definitely not photographic, but I like to think that I remember you know, more key features of, 
of what I read, mm -hmm. uh, lessons learned, maybe something that I take away from what I read, okay. um, something that I flag in my head as being connected to something else, right. you know, okay. um, but yeah, definitely not photographic. Okay, well, it's definitely, to me. <laughs> definitely not what it used to be 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, the amount of reading you do is impressive. How is it um, now with your own family, with your kids? Mm -hmm. Has, is the, this um, tradition of reading a lot translated to them? Like, what is your influence on them, you think? Um, well, I mean, the challenge now is we, we live in a very different world, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, your iPhone or your computer is probably the greatest impediment to mm -hmm. the tradition of reading. Uh, but all, th all three kids do read okay. quite a bit, yeah. not, not all to the same extent, but, um, but they all read and they enjoy reading and mm -hmm. they, um, you know, they have a, a curiosity, curiosity yeah. uh, for which I'm very grateful. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad. Okay, let's talk a little bit about success. I, I'm curious about your own definition of success for yourself, not for everybody. And who do you, like when you think about where you are now, who, who are the first people that come to your mind as being your, at, behind your back, cheering you up and all those things? Okay, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for success, you know, I think um, there are different um, way, I, I don't think that there is one way of describing success, so, you know, for me personally, um, that has also changed over time. Okay. What what success yes. means? Um, I think as as um, as almost everyone who's gone or is going through medical middle age, um, <laughs> you begin to be a little bit more reflective about impact and legacy. And so for me, you know, uh, success is to do something in the world that leaves it a better place mm -hmm. than it was if I was not there. Cool. Um, you know, the, the more the better, if you like, or <laughs> the bigger the better, but, but fundamentally it's about, you know, what can we do in this world that, that makes it a better place. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I have, I'm fortunate that certainly in terms of my own family, my wife or my father yeah. uh, or um, my brother or other close family and, and friends um, who, you know they certainly support that understanding of what success is I've never been I've never felt compelled to earn more money or mm -hmm. to have a title pursue a particular position for the sake of position yeah. um, you know the question has always been is you know what does this lead to? How does this help people? How mm. does this make the world a better place? Yeah, and that explains also your volunteer organization part, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, okay. I mean that's uh, and, and and that's really it's reciprocal, right? I mean you yeah. um, you anchor yourself in that idea that uh, you have an obligation to um, discharge. You've been given certain blessings that mm -hmm. you need to repay, yeah. right? We don't so much as we would like to think otherwise. Nobody really deserves their success, yeah. you know. Uh, and I'm sure you know, like I do, people that are very hardworking, that are very quote unquote smart, that that don't achieve 
mm-hmm. uh, any measure of financial or titular success. And so I think, you know, when you find yourself fortunate enough to have had that level of success, you have to pay back. Yeah, well said. So among the, all the stuff you've done, what has been the most uncertain, risky, nerve-wracking thing you've done that have gave you a lot to reflect on? If you were to pick a moment or a situation, you were totally out of your element. Well, I mean, that's, for me, it's not a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely that year in international relations. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, we had known, very few of us had any formal training in diplomacy or international relations. We were navigating a very uncertain landscape. We had very few resources. We had a lot of enemies, um, internal and external, and uh, you didn't know who to trust. Um, You didn't even know if the people who were on your side or putatively on your side um, were, I mean, even the people that you could trust, you didn't know if their assessment and the way they saw the world was actually, you know, um, quote-unquote accurate. Yeah. Um, and so that was difficult. Um, I remember being at uh, number 10 Downing Street and uh, meeting with with representatives of the British government at the time and um, not not the Prime Minister um, but thinking you know uh, I have no idea what I'm doing oh, <laughs> oh Jesus <laughs> you know, I mean I I, I, oh. I, w- I like to think and certainly some of the feedback that I received over the course of that year and subsequently by by reasonably accomplished individuals yeah. that we did a a reasonable job, uh-huh. you know, and that we projected an image of some competence, yeah. um, but uh, but you're coming at this, you know, from uh, from a position of, of little preparedness, other than what you know about the world, yeah, you know, which which wasn't I'm not you know I, I shouldn't minimize that, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly. There are some basic skills around being able to read a room, mm. um, you know, be critical, uh, being prepared in, for a particular meeting, understanding the issues as best as you can, and so on. So some basic skills that um, that some seasoned, you know, um, officers of, of, of um, different ministries did possess. Mm. Um, but if you're talking about nerve-wracking and anxiety-provoking, uh, that would take the cake for me. Wow, yeah. No, feeling that you don't know what you're doing is a pretty powerful message. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, we did get um, fairly positive feedback, particularly after the end of the administration, which, you know, of course, is, I think well, most people would know ended in a, in a military coup mm-hmm. against the president. But in the years after that, I continued to be in touch with a number of individuals and had the opportunity to have some reflective conversations about that period. And like I said, I think um, we projected a a strong image and a competent image. Um, 
but that feeling inside you is a different story. Yeah, totally. But one point that you made that I think is, is a very cool message is like the basic skills are so important. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And um, you know, this is why I do think medicine actually is a great um, uh. profession and calling vocation, if you like, because to be a good physician, you really do need to. Um, master a lot of skills beyond the technical, yes. beyond the um, sort of discipline specific. Mm -hmm. um, it is that ability to connect with people, to understand people, to know what their fears are, or to elicit their concerns, mm -hmm. to do your research, to yeah. you know, your background, background reading, to, to delve deeper into things, to understand that there are uh, underlying uh, causes and issues and reasons mm -hmm. for the phenomena that you see on the surface. Yeah. Regardless if it is a medical phenomenon or a political phenomenon. Absol the same. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I yeah. mean, I think it's just that the latter is a population-based um, uh, enactment of what the individual uh -huh. you know, issue is. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, I'm almost there. I would like to end with the questions that I call the small things in life. Yeah. So I, I want to know, first of all, what are your simple pleasures? You know, lately it's just sitting on the deck and enjoying a good weather. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would say that's definitely, um, we have a, a new um, fire pit in the backyard, okay. uh, courtesy of a dear friend. Um, and so just sitting by the fire and, uh, and enjoying the weather is, is definitely up there. Well, this is funny. I'm telling you why. I have this little deck of cards, and I try to pick one for every interview for people. And the first one that came for you was if you were sitting in your backyard, <laughs> what would be the ideal image that you would like to see? You know, I uh, the fire is all I need. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very partial to water, and mm. I uh, I have to say, London is um, you know is a bit of a challenge that way. <laughs> you know, my as I said, my parents were both uh, marine engineers, naval architects, oh, yeah, and yeah. so we, we we had to live by the water. Okay. Um, so in Egypt, we lived in. Uh, Port Said in Kuwait, it was the Gulf, and Newfoundland mm -hmm. was the ocean. Okay. Uh, and then it, I just, as it happened, Kingston uh, was on the lake. Um, yeah. London is the first place that I've lived that doesn't have a substantial body of water, mm. but I love the water. Oh, that's good. Yeah, For me, it would be the mountains. Yeah. London doesn't yeah. have the mountains yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So if at this point of your life, you talked about the <laughs> mid-career crisis. I'm not saying you are in there, but at this point in your life, would you rather age forward or age backwards? I would rather age not at all. Not at all? Okay, that's, that's, I forgot to put that in the option list. <laughs> I'm quite happy with where I am. Okay. I don't, I don't necessarily want to be younger, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the prospect of, of growing older is... Yeah. Um, is um, I, I think it takes the most serene individual mm -hmm. to contemplate uh, themselves in older age yeah good point okay two more questions one is despite all you have read in your life if you were to choose one topic to be brilliant at what would that be to your standards of brilliance <laughs> yeah, uh, 
I mean, I'm not sure brilliance would be the word to describe mastery of this particular discipline, okay. but it is the art of managing oneself. Oh, wow, that's a high toll, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, definitely. Just, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the motto was written at the um, Temple of Delphi okay. right, is know thyself. Yeah. And so that, that the mastery of actually understanding yourself uh, is something that I would love to acquire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good choice. Okay, final question. Usually one that I have asked before is, um, I'm curious to know when people choose a particular path in their lives, if you had had the chance of choosing anything and everything, but not medicine or medical education or politics, what would you have chosen to become? Um, so to become, I don't know, mm -hmm. uh, because what I would, what I, what I will say, I would have really been interested in doing. I'm not sure what it would have allowed me to become, but I definitely yeah. it would be the humanities writ oh, okay. large, um, history definitely, um, and I really would have loved to be more uh, musically capable. Oh, okay. I would have loved to be, I love music, okay. and again, from coming from different disciplines, whether it's classical music or um, Arabic music, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I cannot for the life of me carry a tune, uh, so I, I can't imagine, <laughs> I, I, I would not, I mean, learning an instrument would be a, a mountain to climb, yeah. but I, I would have loved to, um, to be more immersed in history. Okay. Uh, it would have been wonderful to find a way of getting paid for that. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, that of learning okay. an instrument. That's cool. What are you reading these days? I am, uh, <laughs> you caught me I, uh, on a bad run. So Oops. I just finished the course, um, and so I'm reading three books. Okay. Um, one of them is uh, one of those uh, Harvard Business Reviews, oh, yeah. uh, 10 Papers On. Okay. And so it's, this one is the 10 Papers on Mental Toughness, oh, okay. uh, which is interesting. And uh, the second book that I started reading is, which I never would have imagined myself reading, actually uh, <laughs> my wife recommended that I read it and I kind of blew it off, and, but it was a recommendation uh, from, okay. from somebody at this course, is uh, Brittany Brown's Outlets of the Heart. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then the third book that I'm uh, reading is on trauma and healing, oh. uh, which I think is, um, I, I, you know, I think we're going to um, be dealing with a lot of trauma, uh, mm -hmm. post-trauma um, in healthcare yeah. after COVID, and so I, I'm trying to just gain some insights into oh, that. Fascinating. Okay. Well, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have a chat with you. It is an honor and definitely a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. And everyone, we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.